Good day, everyone. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. And welcome to the Youth Perspective. This podcast aims to discuss and offer some fresh perspective on the role of the youth in addressing different social and political issues across the globe. This podcast episode is brought to you by the Cal Youth in collaboration with the Women and Gender Institute, also known as Wagi of Miriam College, and with the support of the Frederick Newman Foundation for Freedom. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, SoundCloud, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. I'm Danny, the program coordinator from the Women and Gender Institute, and we are joined today by Dr. Mira Alexa. She is the Associate Professor from Ateneo de Manila University, former Chairperson of the Psychology Department, current Director of the Loyola Schools Gender Hub, the Center for Gender Responsiveness in the Ateneo de Manila University, Loyola Schools. She has a PhD in Social Psychology, an MA in Counseling Psychology from the same institution. Uh, She has been an advocate for gender equality, gender justice, and gender and sexual diversity for over 20 years. She conducts training, research, counseling, and advocacy on gender issues and teaches gender and sexuality. She's also a licensed psychologist. Let's jump right into it. To begin, women empowerment and gender equality has come a long way since the first and second waves of feminism. However, how is it that in 2021, there's still quite a gap between men and women in areas like the economy, and politics. And to answer this question, we will look into positioning, specifically those that have shaped power and social relations between men and women in society. Ms. Mira, uh, can you please tell us about positioning and why, especially in the field of politics, is power still seen as a male trait? Hello, Danny, and thank you for having me in today's uh, episode. Um, your question is quite a heavy question. Um, and if we are to also locate our answer in feminist theory and feminist research, we understand the power relations uh, understood between men and women, uh, the unequal power relations as rooted in structures and systems no, in society that has created a way of relating to each other that wherein men are granted more economic and political power. So one answer to that is really structural no, or systemic. And just as an example, if you look back in history and I don't like to use the word history, actually, because history is his story, which again reflects the dominance of men. It's his and not hers, right? So just looking back um, into how government was created, the state was created, then you go back and look at who the citizens were and who were recognized as citizens, and you you get to see how males created the state and how males 
dominated no, or governed the state no so and made men citizens but not women so if you go back to that structural there is a story no structural however you think aren't we in a different time now 2021 that's your question and you would like to think with the advances made by the feminist movements globally alongside allies and state actors who have committed to gender equality, where we really have seen no, women's increased participation in economics and politics, right? The participation of women in work, um, the in, in labor and and in leadership positions in, in government. You would like you would think maybe things have changed. And yet, because of that history, there, there remains a, a view that politics is still the domain of men, you know? and leadership is still the domain of men. Now, what I wish to share for this episode is how the structures, the root, is supported and mediated by discourses. Now, what do I mean by that? When you have a discourse that sees men as the acknowledged uh, powerful, uh, let's say, gender or sex, then that system continues to be supported. That system of gender inequality continues to be supported. Now, let's unpack that discourse. What are discourses? The way we understand the world you know, is constructed by words, by language, by talk. And when we talk about politics, when we talk about economics, when we talk about men, when we talk about women, and then when we talk about their roles and what defines them, and when we link the role of leading and being powerful for, to men, that is us constructing reality. That is us using language and using talk to give men the power. And what do we give women? That's actually a question I would want to pose to the youth, whoever is listening to us right now. What are we giving women? Because we always say, okay, men is equated to power and men are granted the power. Who is granting what is granting it? For this episode, we locate that power to grant these rights in language. And with that, the beauty of it is, to me, when we trace the, uh, the creation of power to language, then we also hold the power or ability to change structures, to change systems through language. So if I say, or if a group of people will declare that women have that right to lead, that women also have that same power to claim no, for themselves, then we are changing the discourse. We are using language 
to claim power for women. And that is one way by which we use language to, to change the economic and political landscape. Uh, thank you, Ms. Mira. It's like you're saying that talk is action, right? And language shape consciousness. So being mindful of what we say, how we say things, the words we use, is that that's what I'm picking up from this conversation, that being mindful of those very simple day-to-day -day things that we wouldn't usually take note of can be very powerful in changing the realities that uh, both men and women, but more so in this situation, women encounter when going into the field of um, politics in particular. Um, you mentioned something earlier that one of the sources for inequality is really structural. So acknowledging that we do have to change our day-to-day -day language, um, do you have any practical tips that we can start, that we can try to implement as soon as we can, considering that the elections in the Philippines in particular are coming up very soon. How do you think can we reposition, um, change the discourse in the power dynamics between men and women in the political and economic landscape? Thank you for that, Danny. And um, as we noted, no, as we noted how language is also still associated with structures, right? And we're trying to change in the end the structure. What I want to also highlight here is how sometimes in the everyday, ordinary people, ordinary citizens like us who will eventually vote and then we claim our power through the vote. In the everyday, language allows us a space to create change because systems are difficult to change. Structures are difficult to change. You cannot just uh, make an institution, you cannot just break an institution, right? Or, or break the system, not. Uh, and so what we offer here is that in the everyday, changing our language, changing how we position men, women, as well as the diversity of genders. So how do we position even cisgender men vis-a-vis -vis transgender men, vis-a-vis -vis non-binary people? How do we position even cisgender women vis-a-vis -vis transgender women and queer people? So understanding that these small uh, episodes in our everyday life, no? that we encounter people, understanding that we have that space to create change through language. Maybe let's start with some examples no? so that it will be easier, like maybe an example in the everyday and how that can become a practical tip or tool eventually when you are in the political arena no? and is want, are want, you're wanting to reposition uh, the people. No? Um, the diversity of men and the diversity of women in that uh, uh, political space, right? One example is what I'm doing. What do I mean by that? I start referring to people beyond just men and women. What does it do? It shapes our reality, reconstructs it as, oh, there's not just men and women in the world. 
we have to be inclusive of all genders and let's say all sexuality. So maybe recognizing that when we say men, it also assumes that those men are cisgender or masculine presenting, masculine expressing, and assumed to be heterosexual. So when we use the word men, sometimes it invisibilizes the diversity of men, including gay men, including uh, feminine men, including queer men, and so on. And the same way with women. When we say women, who are we referring to? And how can we be inclusive of our use of women? Do we say, when we say women, is it inclusive of transgender women? Is it inclusive of masculine women? Is it inclusive of uh, lesbian women or bisexual women or uh, uh, polyamorous women or uh, pansexual women and so on? No? So I'm confusing people now as I'm speaking. I, I'm assuming that people are starting to get confused. What is she talking about? But the point is... You just make a shift in how you talk, as an example here. Initially, you might think the world is just composed of two types of people, men and women. And when we speak of gender equality, it is only about the equality of this group, one group called men, and this with another group called women. But with what I just did, in my talk, in my language, I have reconstructed the world to be composed of a multiplicity of people, of genders and of sexualities. I hope that that example made sense to the people listening to us. I hope it made sense to you, Danny. But like, um, so if I were to look now at particular examples, maybe that, that um, let's say we're wanting to change the power relations or how we view the generic men and generic women after I have qualified that uh, this desire to be inclusive. So when I'm now, um, but for simplicity's uh, sake, no meaning to, to be understood to people, I'll just refer to the generic men and generic women. One, one example I have is... Um, we speak a lot of women's empowerment or female empowerment. That is a discourse we carry. Meaning we are giving women, females, the right to have power. My question, and to the youth listening, what is the discourse for men? How are we to position men? Because I was really seriously thinking about it. So what's the parallel? If we're changing a power relation, we're changing an unequal power relation where men are granted power and women are disempowered, where men are given privilege and women are marginalized. So in that seesaw, in that imbalance, we said, empower women. What do you do with the men? Are they to remain in power or are they to remain with privilege? That's really a curious question for me. What is our discourse on men? 
as an example. So my examples are really questions or reflection points for the audience maybe, but I don't know if this is working now. But um, another example would be the set of roles or identities we place on people. Even that basic assumption that it should be the man to, who should be strong. Or in the family, the man should be the provider. Um, then how can we reposition for both men and women? Not just that to say that, oh, women can also be strong and that women can also be providers, but also to reposition men there so that it is not solely there uh, solely the expectation on them. Why can't we have, let's say, uh, a discourse that um, it's a shared responsibility providing for families? Why is it like that? Why is it gendered in that sense? Why, why make a certain gender the breadwinner, the provider? Why not raising a family and... Uh, Providing for the family is a shared responsibility. That is repositioning. Or even in your own personal relationships, you might think there are certain expectations, the way you position each other. A reflection for you is how can you change that? What if there are certain positions that actually make you feel less powerful or make you feel uh, that the relationship is unequal? How can one reposition? And how can the other also reposition? So I always say it has to be the, I mean, in a sense, both parties being repositioned. So if we're talking about entering the political landscape and you're seeing, okay, men are being granted the right to lead. This is very strong, very strong um, discourse. And when it has become so embedded, that discourse, it becomes a given. People take it for granted. People take it for granted that a country's president should be a man. Or uh, the leaders in government should be men, primarily. People take it for granted. And then you wonder, why is it so difficult for women to enter that same space? Where is the discourse for women? Where's the discourse for women that would put women at the same, uh, grant them the same power, see them in the same way as men? Because right now, because the political landscape is male-centric, uh, then every woman who enters that space is um, evaluated in relation to men, in relation to the man at the center. And therefore, no matter how the woman positions, she's always read as less. Oh, you become strong, but you're not supposed to be strong. You're supposed to be feminine and you know womanly. And so you are interpreted as not a good leader. And then when the woman becomes feminine and so relational and nurturing, and then she's perceived again, oh, you're not being like a man. We need a leader who's, uh, let's say, um, non-emotional, can be objective, and so on. 
And always, the way she's evaluated is in relation to the man in the center. So the question there to me, or maybe the proposition is, creating as many alternative discourses for women to shake that male-centric point of view, to shake that man is leader, man is better, man is stronger. If you put a man as a leader, then you have a strong, stronger leadership, better leadership. How do you shake that? How do you change that dominant discourse? What are the discourses for women, but also changing those discourses for men? I mean, that's the reflection point for everyone listening, I guess. Thank you, Miss. Making sense, Danny? Yeah, yeah, it it does, and that makes a lot of sense. I I now understand that this has to be, so to speak, a two way street. We can't just uplift one, reposition one, and then leave one hanging. I say, what happens then, right? Now, I was just thinking, um, how? Okay, so we try to balance that seesaw, but what happens then when we encounter? And this is, you know, I'm thinking. Um, trying to put myself in the position of someone who is going into this field already. What happens? I do this every day. I change my language, but then I. What do we? How? How do you um, recommend we deal with individuals who really just does not insist on being a hurdle to this? Um, to me, trying to change the discourse, trying to change my language, uh, um, invalidating it, and and you know how how should we react to those type of individuals when we encounter them? Okay, I'm trying to imagine scenarios here, and I'm imagining certain difficult situations where there are many also ways by which we've seen uh, these hurdles that you refer to. Uh, they come in, they're embodied in different forms and they come out in different ways of questioning. Um, and this is also like a curious question for me because to me, the underlying question there is, how do you, uh, I guess, change or how do you ask? I don't, maybe ask is not the word, but like the people in power and who are holding on to power, sometimes consciously, sometimes not consciously, sometimes really intentionally, how, how can they share their power in a sense? And how can they, to me, you know, this is like uh, asking people to recognize their position of privilege. How do you facilitate that? Because you can have these people, as you say, like here you are, trying to enter an unequal playing field and trying to overcome each hurdle and you're constantly repositioning as unequal. I have the same rights. 
I have the same abilities, I have the same capacity to lead. And then you are confronted by, by that uh, discourse no? that, that says no, or that says never, or we won't let you in, almost. Like we won't let you in, uh, no matter what you that's hard. What do you do with those people? No, or and again, this is what we are trying to do. I think feminists and um, you, the youth, are advocates for change and for equality. That's that's what we're trying to do, which is make people aware of their position of power and privilege. It's difficult because in the end, ultimately, I think that equality to me can only be achieved if, if we eventually share power across in our own micro setting in the family, for example. How will we see equality if everyone inside that micro setting, that family, that household will agree to share power. Because no matter what one party says, if that is not acknowledged and recognized by the rest, you won't be able to achieve it. Inside and even in your own relationships, personal relationships, let's say in an intimate relationship, the same way you have two people maybe or your partners and you're trying to look at how can you achieve equality if one will refuse to recognize the power of the other? So in the same vein, like in this political landscape, we need everyone to come together. And perhaps that is a question also for our uh, youth. I'm <laughs> talking to like, okay, the people who are, you know, the youth who are, engage in politics, who are wanting to change the political landscape. Um, what, what will work? What, what can help people recognize their privilege and allow them to share that power, to share? So then we break that imbalance. So the breaking of the imbalance to create that balance, so you need both sides to come together. Uh, so apart from it being a two-way street, we also have to acknowledge that it starts with the self and even starts at home, right? Is that something, that was something that I'm picking up from you, Miss Mira, that we have to begin where we can, essentially, in our daily lives. Um, you also mentioned the talk of power and privilege and having people um, recognize that they are in a position of power and privilege. And when we talk about power and privilege, or at least even from my personal experience, people tend to get very defensive of their power and privilege. So how do you, do you have any suggestions on how we can um, facilitate a kinder, more meaningful discussion around power and privilege where people will not 
close up, get defensive, but still get your point across and people start to realize that, hey, maybe this is something that I can share. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to think you know, of uh, some of the encounters we've had you know, where people actually embraced an exercise of becoming aware of their own privilege and power. Sometimes what has helped us is to begin with an understanding that we have multiple identities. So it comes from a lens we refer to sometimes as intersectionality and recognizing that some of these identities give us power, some maybe actually disempower us. And then when we reflect on those multiple intersecting identities, it can allow us to recognize if we're constantly in power, also if we're constantly marginalized, or we sort of um, vary. Like sometimes I do have power and sometimes I may be marginalized. That allows people to see how you may not always be in a position of power. That power also it can be fluid. And recognizing that when one gets to recognize certain moments when they also feel disempowered, sometimes they are able to connect more to people's experience of oppression and marginalization. So I guess uh, what I'm driving at is a way to connect to people's experience of being disempowered or marginalized. If people can make that connection with others' experience of oppression and relate it to their own, and then in that same exercise, hopefully realize how their own power may be shaping that, we hope that that can bring about change in people, that they will start to recognize their own power. And knowing too, that power, as I said, you know, because if we go back to um, the power of language and our ability to position and reposition, then even, even privilege, you know, those positions of privilege can be positioned and repositioned. Um, the other idea I had with your question is, if we also begin by looking at our concerns or the issues from a social perspective, what do I mean by that? Where we emphasize the collective rather than the individual. So when we start looking ourselves as we're part of a bigger collective or for example, oh, this is our family or this is our community, oh, this is our country, then individual privileges you know, become less important compared to collective responsibilities. And so if we think, okay, gender equality is a social problem, a social issue. And if we start thinking it's not just an individual problem, it's not just that one woman's problem 
It's not just women's problem. It's the community, our community. If we start thinking that way, then maybe we can break away from, oh, it's man's fault and then it's my fault and I become defensive because I'm being positioned as at fault. Because if we start recognizing it's a collective problem, then maybe it's easier for us to become part of the solution because we are not positioned as you know, the enemy. We're not positioned as uh, to blame, but rather we are positioned as having a shared responsibility to care for gender equality because it affects all of us. Because gender equality is an issue of all, not just an issue of women, not just an issue of um, LGBTIQ community. It's an issue of all people. So that's, I think, that I think is a, a way of maybe reframing it so that people will not be as defensive and hopefully people will be become allies in this um, quest for change. Thank you so much, Ms. Mira, for your insights, for answering my questions and giving us those prompts to think about wherever we are right now. And I just want to reiterate some of the points that you mentioned. One being, or the first rather, that it starts with language, the language that we use on a day-to-day -day in our conversations with our peers, uh, the language we use in the workplace and how we interact with uh, individuals, especially if you are in politics or in a position of power. Uh, second to remember is that changing the discourse um, is a two-way street. It cannot just be the discourse of women or dominant gender, or we just cannot keep positioning one over the other. Uh, in her metaphor, this is a seesaw that has to balance eventually. It cannot just be one or the other uh, that is higher. Third is to create and open as many avenues as you can where you can reposition dominant discourses. And again, through language and remembering that this effort is a two-way street. Uh, fourth is to start with the self. Start with how you think, the, la the words you use. Start with your family, start with your friends, start with your peers. Um, and start today if you can, but also to remember that this goes or it has to go beyond the self to truly resolve, to truly change the structural um, powers that are currently in place that, that make this situation what it still is despite you know any advances that we've had in the last few decades it has to go beyond the self and we have to see the problem as a problem of the community as a problem of society and when we start to shift our mindset that it goes beyond the self we become a bigger part of the solution everybody becomes part of the solution and finally, again, I cannot emphasize this enough. We cannot emphasize it enough. We have to start today. Start today, start tomorrow in your own little way. Just start when you can, as soon as you can. And with enough effort over time, with 
as many open doors, as many avenues as you can, we will slowly but surely start to see change. That is it. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope you could be with us again in our next episode. And again, this podcast is brought to you by the Cal Youth, the Women and Gender Institute, and the Frederick Newman Foundation. Thank you.